Welcome to Sidebars, Kilpatrick Townsend's limited podcast series focused on women and underrepresented groups in patent law. I'm April Abley Isaacson, a patent litigator and office managing partner of the San Francisco office. And I'm Kate Geyer, a patent litigation associate in Seattle. We're here to discuss the gender gap in the patent bar and have candid conversations with female patent practitioners on their career paths. Today, Kate and I have the distinct honor of interviewing two professors from Temple Law School, Rachel Rebouche and Paul Gugliuzza. Rachel and Paul authored the paper, Gender Inequality in Patent Litigation, with its forthcoming publication in North Carolina Law Review later this year. In the fall of 2021, I attended a webinar from the Federal Circuit Bar Association related to gender inequality among Federal Circuit advocates. Rachel and Paul were on the panel, and there was an excellent discussion related to this topic. One of the things they talked about in detail was their paper, and it was the inspiration for this season of Sidebars. I actually reached out to them to get this interview, and we feel very fortunate to have done so. Rachel Rebouche is the Interim Dean of Temple University Beasley School of Law and a James E. Beasley Professor of Law. Prior to her appointment as Interim Dean, she was an Associate Dean for Research, a position she held from 2017 to 2021. She's also a faculty fellow at Temple Center for Public Health Law Research. Dean Rebouche is a leading scholar in feminist legal theory, reproductive health law, and family law. She is an author of Governance Feminism, an introduction, and an editor of Governance Feminism, Notes from the Field. Dean Rebouche received a JD from Harvard Law School, an LLM from Queens University, Belfast, and a BA from Trinity University. Prior to law school, she worked as a researcher for the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and at the Human Rights Center at Queens University, Belfast. After law school, Dean Rebouche clerked for Justice Cato Regan on the Constitutional Court of South Africa and practiced law in Washington, D.C., where she served as an associate director of Adolescence Health Programs at the National Partnership for Women and Families, formerly the Women's Legal Defense Fund, and as a Women's Health and Public Policy Fellow at the National Women's Law Center. Professor Paul Guliutza is an award-winning scholar and a teacher who specializes in civil procedure, federal courts, and intellectual property law, with a particular focus on patent litigation. He has published articles in numerous leading law reviews, including the Duke Law Journal, Georgetown Law Journal, Texas Law Review, Vanderbilt Law Review, and Virginia Law Review. Professor Guliutza has testified before both the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives on topics of patent law, and his scholarship has been cited in over a dozen judicial opinions across all levels of the state and federal courts. His article, The Federal Circuit as a Federal Court, received the annual Best Article Award from the Federal Courts Section of the Association of American Law Schools. Before coming to Temple, Professor Guliuzzo was Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law, where he received the Dean's Award in recognition for his teaching. Professor Guliuzza graduated summa cum laude from Tulane University School of Law. After law school, he, cl- he clerked for Judge Ronald M. Gould of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and practiced in the Issues and Appeals Group at Jones Day in Washington, D.C. As I mentioned, your paper was what actually caused us to be interested in focusing on gender inequality and in patent litigation, especially the data-driven approach and offering solutions or at least things that could be done to try to have more diversity, equity, and inclusion in patent litigation. And particularly, I know the paper focused on gender inequality. How is it that the two of you came together in the first place to write this piece? We came to this project because I work in feminist legal theory, reproductive health. I work on issues that touch on gender inequality and Paul. His work is primarily on patent law, patent litigation, and civil procedure, and he had done research on who litigates cases in the patent system and and gave me a draft to read, having discovered this profound gender gap in patent appellate litigation. And we put our heads together because 
you know, I started to think about how this data related to so much rich literature on women in the legal profession or people who identify as women, their experiences in the legal profession, and work that I had been reading around why it's not changing at the very highest levels of law firms and corporate life and in other sectors. You know, one of my research interests is in thinking a lot about how do the entities that decide patent cases, how do the identities of the lawyers who litigate patent cases, how do those things shape the substance of patent law or the patent system? And so I've done a lot of work looking at Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, thinking about how does the fact that we have this specialized appellate court for patent cases um, maybe change sort of the direction of patent law. And as part of that that interest, I'd been collecting some data on the demographics of lawyers who argue patent cases at the federal circuit. Um, and one of the things that I noticed in the course of that research was it was mostly dudes. So uh, I, I wanted to kind of, I've been looking at, in, kind of incidentally noticed that phenomenon, but it was so obvious to me uh, that it felt like it deserved its own research paper. And that's the paper that, that you mentioned. It's forthcoming in the North Carolina Law Review later this year, but it's available right now in the Social Science Research Network. Just Google gender inequality and patent litigation. I'm sure you'll find it or perhaps um, it'll be posted on the website as well. Yeah. And we'll put it in the show notes for, for this episode as well. Yeah. One of the things I know we were talking a little bit off mic was, you know, I'm 55 years old. I've been doing patent law, patent litigation since 2000. Kate, my co-host for the season, she'll be uh, three years out of law school soon and is in her early 30s. And some of the things that you talk about in terms of solutions that we'll get into are great. Those were not available for me at all. And I did start my career and we'll talk about some of the things where the government representation versus private practice is different. I actually started my career as a lawyer as a Navy JAG. And I will say that the diversity, equity and inclusion in this, I got out in 1999, was much better than you see in the patent bar currently and even back in the early 2000s. And Maybe we can pivot to the question of kind of the data sets that you looked at and why you think it is that on the government side, because we'll get into that, you have more representation of women. Is it some sort of specific programs you think that on the government side, they felt the need to have more diversity, equity and inclusion? A couple of the basic findings of the paper are we have a data set of all lawyers who argued federal circuit patent cases from 2010 through 2019, so a 10-year period. And we find that overall, about 88% of the lawyers who argued federal circuit patent cases, or 88% of federal circuit oral arguments, were delivered by male lawyers, only about 12% delivered by female lawyers, which, you know, although dispiriting, may not be surprising if you work in the field and, you know, pay attention to sort of who's, who's doing the work in the field, probably not earth-shattering. Um, however, uh, once you slice and dice the data, you find some interesting things. And I think one of the more interesting things that, April, you just mentioned is that if you limit the data only to lawyers who argue on behalf of the federal government in patent cases, these are mostly lawyers from the Patent and Trademark Office, the figure is about 50-50, right? Almost equal men and women. And that's a really, the magnitude of that disparity between what you see in the private sector where it's about 90-10 and in the government where it's about 50-50, is really remarkable. And so, you know, why is that the case? Like, obviously, you know, government jobs can have more predictable hours and the work-life balance, so to speak, is a little bit better. And that, that can obviously matter to women who we all know disproportionately bear caretaking responsibilities. But I think it's also important to, to note that these, these jobs at the PTO and the solicitor's office at the PTO these are really great jobs, right? If you are like a patent litigator and what you like to do is argue about patent law, that's all you do all day long is you're, you're writing briefs and appeals from the patent office and arguing cases at the federal circuit. So because they're desirable jobs, it allows the, the patent office to be relatively selective about who they hire and they can hire, you know, a, a workforce that has the demographics that patent office wants, right? So there's some, some flexibility there. And then the other side of it is that at the patent office, unlike in private practice, the norm is very much if you write a brief, you will deliver the oral argument at the federal circuit. 
And so if your workforce is roughly evenly gender balanced, then you're going to end up with a roughly evenly gender balanced composition of lawyers presenting oral argument to the federal circuit. And so that's a big factor in what we find as well. I don't have a lot to add to that because I, but I would underscore that the selectivity, when we talk to folks who work in government and make hiring decisions, they are able to use their influence and power and the selectivity of the job, the prestige of the job to ensure that the people they hire are more diverse, are more representative of the population at large. And so I think it's not only the nature of the work and how work is assigned and then brief to oral argument, but I think it's also a decision on the part of the PTO to focus on hiring people of color and women. And what I, what I really like about the sort of highlighting the disparity between private practice and the government is it links into to some of Rachel's prior work on, you know, it, I think it makes clear that this isn't necessarily a patent law story, right? This is about certain areas of practice of law, or maybe even sort of corporate, the corporate world more generally, where women are kind of systematically absent. And it's not a question of like, are there women who are qualified to do this work? Are there women who can do this work? Right? Is there a pipeline of women to do this work? Like, I think like this finding kind of blows that up a little bit. Say so like, these women are out there. And there's something that's happening that keeps them out of the highest echelons of private practice, but not other areas. And we should think really hard about what's causing that in ways we might address that that disparity. No, it's because we start the paper, you know, the common explanation that women don't do patent law or they they're not in STEM areas or they they, you know, fill in the blank. They're they're excluded because they're they're not enough qualified people to fill those roles is just not true. <laughs> yeah, I was going to follow up and, and say this. They relate similar to what you were talking about in, later in the paper with the structural problems with or the structural way that private practice is set up that really is what keeping women out of the workforce. But to back up to one thing you said is, is you said the power of the the PTO to really hire and focus on diversity. We are seeing firms who are also starting to focus on diversity in their hiring and in their promotion. But why do you think the firms are less effective at that hiring, even though there are competitive jobs, even it is still competitive and they are focusing on it. What other things do you think are affecting private practice that that leads their diversity efforts to not be as successful? I think that compensation plays a large role in it, that I think it's laudable and we commend efforts to increase diversity in hiring and in promotion. But the the way in which your work is rewarded through compensation and the outsized rewards that equity partners can receive for driving up business or reputational effects, that doesn't necessarily change the surrounding culture of competition or insiderism or it reinscribes the set of incentives that aren't necessarily conducive to more inclusive or collaborative ways of working or distributing resources in the workplace across levels of seniority or across different hierarchies. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think if you look at at the numbers, across the board, entering classes at big law firms to do patent litigation, it's pretty gender equal these days, right? And it's probably been that way for a decade or so. And in fact, most law school graduating classes have been roughly equal since the the 2000s, if not a little bit before. So it really is the story of like something happening on the way up to the very top that is extremely excluding women. And I think, again, that that sort of highlights that this paper, although the data we have is about high-level patent litigation, I think you could probably tell a similar story about high-level litigation in any other, you know, high-stakes corporate litigation context, or even maybe the corporate world more broadly. And to that point, Paul, I actually watched a very interesting documentary that was about kind of directors, women directors in Hollywood, and the, the figures were very similar. It was like 16% of the directors were women. And the women that were uh, being interviewed were like, we're available. We're, we're here. We're available. And then one network was called out for having some of the most terrible stats with women. And they did some really great work to turn it around. And then half of the directors were female. 
So it's like you said, it's kind of in the corporate culture in general. But one thing I was wondering, do you think that Title VII, in terms of the federal government having the thinking about making sure they're complying with Title VII, maybe one thing, and then on the private practice side, there's these you know, I want to talk about these winner takes all and new boys clubs and old boys network that I certainly dealt with in my career. Do you think that may be part of what also drives where there's change on the federal government side as opposed to some of these institutional biases in private practice? I don't know. I mean, I, certainly as a matter of policy, you saw the Biden administration come in and the, one of the first memos they released was their commitment across agencies and across the board of increasing diversity along a number of different characteristics. You know, I think that Title VII has had an interesting effect in the pipeline for education and then entering the professions. But I'm not sure that it's what it's affected it would have had on an an office like the PTO. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, a lot of this comes back to the economic incentives, right? In private practice, there's just not really an incentive to give away, say, a federal circuit oral argument to some other lawyer if you feel like you can handle it, right? It, to the extent your compensation is tied, maybe not, you know, to the number of arguments you 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 give, but, you know, client relationships, how much business are you drum, drumming up, things like that, the incentives aren't there. And so I think, you know, the one, one reform that we think is really important, although admittedly hard to implement, is tying lawyer compensation, particularly like partner compensation in some way to like objective diversity and inclusion metrics, right? Because until there's like a really clear objective tie between diversity and inclusion and the bottom line, I think the incentives are just not pushing for broader inclusion, whether we're talking about patent law or elsewhere. And the PTO, it's just not, that's just not a relevant consideration. Gender diversity is a consideration, racial diversity is a consideration, diversity of educational background, whatever it might be, right? There's lots of things that the PTO might think about in structuring its workforce, but those economic incentives are not there to pull it away from diversity like they are in the private sector. I think that ties into uh, one of the examples you gave in your paper from the client side and the clients creating uh, some of those economic incentives is I believe there is an example where one of the clients said, if you don't meet your diversity numbers, we're docking your pay by 10%. Do you think th those kind of incentives from the client side would have helped that decision making? Is 10% enough or um, does it need to be more carrot than stick or what kind of things... What kind of incentives do you think could really help that decision making? It's a great question. You know, whether 10% is enough, I think that the value of those very public statements, the value is the, the reputational cost and gains. And so I think it allows HP to brand itself as a forward thinking, you know, company that cares about diversity, that cares about inclusion. And then it allows a law firm that meets that goal to um, also brand itself as someone who is, you know, courting clients that also care about diversity, that has a commitment to having a workforce that is more diverse. What we found in our research, though, is that there are these standout examples that attract a lot of attention but often when people dig into how they work, it's not altogether clear that HP is actually taxing 10% of law firms. It's not clear that uh, the benchmarks of what it means to have met the diversity expectations of a company are clear. You know, there's a, a lot of interesting research out there on the legal profession generally in which law firms complain that they produce information and they, they comply with uh, benchmarks and then nothing happens. You know, they get no feedback, they get no additional business that it doesn't result in kind of a meaningful change with a client. And so there's a problem of transparency, really, I think in whether or not what happens now is producing the kind of change, both in terms of the immediate decisions that law firms make, but also the kind of structural cultural changes that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think the, the policies tying, you know, firm compensation to diversity goals 
are great. But as Rachel mentions, like a key component of that is follow through by the client, right? You say that you're going to dock someone uh, firm 10% if they don't meet your goals, then you actually need to do that thing or else the firm is not going to change its behavior in response, right? So the follow through is a problem. And I think, you know, the other thing to keep in mind here too is these companies can have these sort of lofty goals about diversity. And maybe they even insist generally that their matters are staffed by lawyers with a diversity of backgrounds. But I think what our data shows is that, you know, whether or not that's happening in a broad sense, when it comes to like the key decisions, right? Like who is going to be the face of our very large company in this incredibly important federal circuit oral argument, right? Those opportunities are going to the usual suspects, right? And so even though maybe some people are getting lifted up a little bit through the broader policies, when push comes to shove, we're seeing the same inequalities that you know we've seen and we, we all know exist for a long time. So I think those policies are great, but without a little follow through, without like serious commitment of crucial decisions being influenced by diversity considerations, I'm not sure how much we're going to see big changes. Well, and I was in-house counsel actually at a public pharmaceutical company for almost five years. And we didn't have formal outside counsel guidelines, but we sort of had informal. So we'd have the people come in the pitch. They have a diverse team that would come in, including maybe 50% women. Um, And then I made sure that I policed the bills because I actually reviewed the bills to see who was actually billing the time. And I also knew who was actually doing the work, the brief writing, et cetera. And there was one occasion where um, we kind of had a a Markman hearing, so a claim construction hearing that popped up at the last minute that we were going to get kind of wedged into the the judge's schedule. And the uh, female partner called me to let me know that the uh, white, gray-haired, older, you know, kind of senior guy on the case was not going to necessarily be available in those dates. And I said, I don't care. I know that you're doing the work. Um, I'll let you guys decide how you want to split it up amongst yourself. But I'm assuming that you're going to do at least part of the argument. Doesn't matter to me that he's not available. So and then, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, she had the same approach to things, um, who happens to be female. She's Vietnamese descent and also a lesbian. So, you know, for her, she was particularly interested in making sure we had all these diversity types of uh, things in place. But that was us policing things, like you said. I could also see on some of those bills who was an equity partner because of the way that the billing showed up. But that was me digging into the data, so to speak. And that, that's a great example, too, because, you know, I mean, I came out swinging earlier saying it's all about economic incentives. I definitely don't want to downplay the cultural aspect of it as well. And I love your example of sort of being the in-house counsel who's a woman paying attention to these issues, because one of the one of the recurring themes um, in our conversations about lawyers in practice about this project is that the companies that tend to do better in terms of diversity among the lawyers they hire have more diversity at the companies themselves, right? So if there's a lot of women in the general counsel's office, lo and behold, they end up having more women representing them at the federal circuit. We had several examples of that happening in our conversations about this project. That conversation reminds me of the conversation we had with the federal circuit bar association where in-house counsel said, I make it one of my goals to hire people of color, women of color, women to handle our cases. And one of the things that really struck me about that conversation, and I would love to hear your thoughts, Kate and April, is there was also then a theme of the women, quote unquote, rainmakers who made it. And I've heard in some of these conversations, well, what's what's the solution? Well, you just got to lean in. <laughs> you got to, you, you know, I'm here and I, I've worked hard, but it's because, you know, I, I took the quote unquote bull by the horns and I, you know, I, I played the game and I won. And that does not come up in our paper as a solution <laughs> or what is going to change diversity in that appellate litigation. But I'm curious about your thoughts as both patent experts and, and litigators and lawyers about the prevalence of that idea that the women who are at the top, who make it to the top, have something special about them. They've had a different approach to how they've engaged in the workplace. I'd be fascinated in what you think. I have two thoughts on that. The first one is the women who I think have made it have been able to play in a system that doesn't work for the majority of people. 
And it's great that they were able to play at the system, but I don't think the answer is only women who can play in the system that was built when women didn't work and women weren't lawyers. We should just keep it this way. I haven't seen many women in my practice take that approach because it's not necessarily pulling up the ladder behind you, but it's not making it easier either. It's kind of just saying the status quo is okay. So I I hope most women look at this and say, just because I had to go through it doesn't mean that was right. And it doesn't mean that there aren't ways to make it easier or just to make the entire practice better. Because we do talk about women a lot um, and how to make women be able to participate in the profession fully. But there are probably men who also take on more childcare responsibilities or would like to, but they can't because of this traditional dynamic where the woman stays home and the men does the work. So I I think there are benefits for both sides uh, or both genders if we broaden that. Um, And the other point, and maybe this is kind of a, a separate point, but what I heard in that last bit of conversation, too, is that it sounds like women are the ones doing all the work for making diversity work. And that's kind of just like an extra level or an extra thing women have to do. So it's not just doing your job, doing well, being promoted. But then on top of that, it's extra you have to do to help the women behind you or to change the system. And I'd like to hear of more male rainmakers, the more senior white men generally. I'd like them to just hear more about them taking on that task and, and them prioritizing it because I think the more women have to do the work, the more they're going to get burned out and just kind of it's just something extra on top of a job that's already very difficult and time consuming. And maybe I can speak to that because like I said, I've been, you know, kind of doing doing patent litigation since 2000 and perhaps a little story and another story. I remember as I was a senior associate and I was working seven, seven days a week and I remember there was a partner I worked with who would have his wife come drop off dinner, was taking care of the kids, picking up the dry cleaning, doing all the errands. And I told him, I either need to have a half an hour off to um, go to the store and buy more underwear or actually have some time to go home and wash my clothes because I don't have anybody to do that for me because I was a single woman working seven days a week. And then to... Um, to Kate's point about ladder pulling, I did see that with the generation above me. I'm a Gen Xer. You know, I saw that I got a lot of people that said, this was really hard for me. So good luck. I'm not going to feel like I have to do anything for you. And they pulled the ladder. But I personally feel like I have a responsibility to the next generations after me to make sure that that doesn't happen. So it may be that for me in my career, I won't necessarily have the ability to fully achieve what I would have liked to have achieved because of my generation. But I'm hoping that we can do things to change some of these institutional biases to help Kate's generation and beyond. So I'm curious to kind of Paul and Rachel, your thoughts about about that and what Kate said earlier. I mean, I agree with the way you put that, Kate, that we think it's important to talk about what courts can do and what clients can do and what law firms can do. But of course, the question is a much more complex, difficult question around changing what are the expectations of people in a workplace. A law firm followed suit of most of corporate America in being in its compensation structure, as we've talked about, and frankly, in being having different expectations about what profit means <laughs> and, and how profit should decide and determine an institution or an organization's priorities and and culture. And so one of the things that we're talking about is it also seems to me that the add women and stir approach to uh, diversity and inclusion is so uh, lacking. Not that giving people professional opportunities is a bad thing, but you're not making, you're not changing the kind of cultural impediments to advancement that that you've identified, Kate. And the fact that, April, you've just said that you may not accomplish everything that you necessarily want to accomplish professionally because you've made a commitment to mentorship and the time that it takes and to having a wonderful program like this, that says something about the need for continued change so that there is space to do the things you want because you're being rewarded for doing these things that are expected of you as a senior attorney. 
And so that I think, I mean, it's a difficult set of questions, but I also agree with Kate that it's everybody's problem. So it's not a, it's an issue that you can have one diversity coordinator who's the only person who's supposed to care about <laughs> what the workplace is like. And, you know, someone who looks like Paul is exempt. You know, one of the responses that we sometimes get to this project is, well, this is just a timeline problem. As time goes by and more women are entering the patent workforce, this problem is just going to kind of solve itself. And I think, you know, we're pretty emphatic in saying no, right? I mean, overt gender discrimination has been unlawful um, for decades, yet we still find these incredible disparities at the highest levels of private law practice. And so one of the things that I like to, to think about with this project is the, the 88% of oral arguments being delivered by men. These are not, this is not exclusively the province of a bunch of like really old, crusty white guys who are going to retire in the next decade, right? It's a wide range of men who are doing this. I don't think we're really telling a story very I mean, although certainly over explicit gender discrimination occurs, I don't think that is what we're picking up. I think we're picking up something that's much more subtle, much more structural, and therefore a little bit makes it a lot harder to solve. So I think it's what makes this project fascinating, intriguing, but also potentially a little dispiriting um, because you know, there's there's things that clients can do, there's things that firms can do, there's things that courts can do, but what's driving our results is really subtle and really hard to to fix. You mentioned in the paper and have also mentioned while we've been talking is that law firms have this diversity, equity, and inclusion or some sort of officer or these initiatives, but are they truly understanding what's actually happening? Because, you know, there'll be like client relationship uh, attorney and origination credit and things of the like. And what I see, I've seen over my career is it's, a white dude that has the relationship with whatever client he bequeaths that when he retires or as he becomes more senior to another white dude. And then they don't really have to do the work other than make sure they don't screw up the client relationship. And it kind of perpetuates from there. Or I've seen where it's the guy that, and by the way, Kate and I both have STEM backgrounds, um, just to, to put that on the record, you know, and that goes to another point that we can maybe talk about a little bit more. And then it gets, you know, this whole thing gets perpetuated. And, or you get the guys that maybe kind of like nerds in college, you know, that were engineers or something, and now are kind of got some juice at their law firm. And then they have some white dude that looks like them that they think is kind of cool. And then they give him the opportunity and they're not even aware of the fact that they're excluding women. And then maybe a little side note to that. I've certainly been called in as the woman, the token woman to be on a trial team because the client wants a woman or it's a female judge. They're not getting it. They're not doing it for the right reason. They're doing it because they're feeling forced to do it. So I know I put a lot in there, but I'd love to see if you can unpack that. Yeah, I think of a couple of things. First, I think of the direct perpetuation of exclusive practices. So that is the kind of unthinking, who's my mentee? Do I care that my mentee looks exactly like me? Do I care that I'm signaling to other people in this organization and, of course, to this person that they are the heir apparent to my clients and the resources that I've amassed during my career? There are those explicit markers of privilege. And I think that what you're uncovering as well is what makes us so pernicious is all the implicit markers of privilege, too, the way of talking uh, what we highlight in the paper, you are able to stay, to your example of a previous position, you're able to stay in the office until midnight because you don't have to go home and put uh, children to bed or other. You're able to go out after that 10 p.m. shift and grab a drink and talk about your, you know, your day. You're, you have a language to do that. You have a way of talking to each other. You don't have the kind of insider, the inclusion tax of feeling like you have to show up at a meeting because you need a, you need someone that looks like you at the table, or you need to go to a committee meeting because they need someone that looks like you to work on, you know, this aspect of firm governance. That certainly happens at law schools. And 
I can tell you in this interim dean position, I am constantly reminded about how pervasive some of those practices are to the even more implicit privileges. I've read um, uh, some chapters of a really fascinating book called The Whiteness of Wealth uh, by Dorothy Brown. And it's how the tax system and the accumulation of wealth and how that's passed down generation to generation has so entrenched racial inequality and injustice in ways that we never think about. Because we look at the tax system and say, oh, that, well, that, uh, that practice is colorblind, but it's absolutely not. Because of the long-term arc of inequality. And that's missing from the conversation, too. There are these discrete moments, there are the firm-based moments, but there is also this, a conversation about implicit bias and in, gender inequality that stretches generations. I mean, Kate, to your point about if you don't want to change the status quo, you're not going to get very far because the status quo is one in which women weren't welcome. That's not true anymore, but it's not a history that doesn't exist and have, doesn't have then footprints in the present. Yeah, and so sort of having come from this, you know, the world of private patent law, federal circuit practice myself, you know, I think one thing I, I, I personally hope to accomplish with this paper is you know, opening some eyes among the male attorneys that I worked for, who I know they're on board, like they're, they're supportive of diversity. They certainly wouldn't want to be part of a system that's systematically excluding women or people of color or whatever. And so, you know, hope is well, one small thing I think I hope to accomplish with this paper is like opening their eyes, right? In sort of objective, objective ways. So like, you've probably noticed that you're mostly surrounded by other men who look kind of like you. Actually, it's maybe even worse than you think. And, you know, maybe that's, <laughs> that spurs a little bit uh, of voluntary action among at least some of these lawyers who have the power to affect some changes. And maybe this is a, a little bit of a pivot, but in your paper, you also kind of specifically highlight that pharmaceutical companies seem to be doing something different and seem to be having better representation. What do you think is going on there and that they're doing right so that they are actually seeing progress in, in women being represented? I think there's more women who work in those fields and you find more women in the general counsel's office at pharmaceutical companies and they end up tapping more women to argue on their behalf of the federal circuit. I'm not sure it's much more complex than that. You know, I think to dig a little deeper, I would say, although the pharmaceutical companies tend to do a little bit better in terms of the gender divide, we find in our paper, it's about like 16% to 84% when you focus down on pharmaceutical cases as, opposed to, as compared to about like 90-10 um, overall, they still don't do great. And in fact, uh, I've got another paper with a couple of other co-authors, Sean Tu at the University of West Virginia and um, Amy Smet at the University of Buffalo, where we look specifically at the pharmaceutical industry and we look in particular um, at the examination process and district court patent litigation. And although the, the proportions of women appearing in both of those fora on behalf of private sector clients is a little bit better, it's like in the 30% range. The proportion of women law students, like women entering law school who have backgrounds in those areas of science is actually over 50%, right? So women are overrepresented in those fields on the scientific side, and they're overrepresented among law students who have those backgrounds. And yet there's still a gender disparity in practice. So although it's better. And I think it's better just because there are more women working in pharmaceuticals, chemistry, biology, generally speaking. There still is a disparity. It's still not a pipeline question there, right? Because the pipeline of women entering law school with those backgrounds is very robust. And the water is leaking out of the pipe at some point before they're um, getting really heavily involved in sort of high stakes, either prosecution or litigation. And as someone who has a biochemistry and cellular and molecular biology background and actually does Hatch-Waxman work, I, I can attest to what you're saying, Paul, is, is accurate. I do know that on the panel where I saw the two of you speak back in the fall, there was someone from Sandoz, and you also mentioned in your paper, I do have some former colleagues that work there, um, one who is the, I think her title is Global Head of uh, Litigation. It seems like they've done a great job in terms of the representation of women arguing at the federal circuit. 
what's your understanding about what that company in particular has done to kind of shift that number to being really close to 50-50? They care, yeah. right? I mean, they, I mean, it's, it's what I just said a, a while ago, right? We were privileged to be on a, on a panel, as April mentioned, with a lawyer from the general counsel's office at Sandoz, a generic pharmaceutical company, and it's part of Novartis, I think. And they just care. They care. Like they are attuned. They're paying attention, right? They're, they're doing the thing that I hope more people will do because of our paper, right? Like they know this. They want to bring women. They want to bring underrepresented people to be the face of their company in these high stakes cases. And so they took steps to accomplish that. And maybe our paper brings some awareness of people, uh, you know, among people who, who, who might not be aware of who's being the face of their company so frequently. The one thing I saw in the paper was you did call out some, you know, big tech for maybe not doing uh, such a great job. I saw another panel that was more recent for the Federal Circuit Bar Association where um, where there were, I think, two women from Apple and they talked about how they're wanting to change this whole concept of origination credit and things of the like, because it does perpetuate this institutional bias on the half of the law firms. Uh, I don't know if you have anything to comment related to that. No, I think that gets to my point about, you know, changing the, the economic incentives, right? And if you can tie those incentives to something that's not going to be sort of so implicitly biased in favor of white men, that's going to be a good step to getting people besides white men um, to appear on your behalf. There's the economic incentives, but as we've been talking about, there are also these reputational gains that I don't want to undermine, that you see it in the literature on corporate social responsibility, that the you know something like tech and the gig economy, which has faced Silicon Valley, has not been known as the most gender-welcoming place <laughs> in the world. <laughs> I, I'm in the Bay Area, so I hear you. <laughs> We put back on the table, you know, are you actually realizing diversity goals? But there is a noticeable shift in at least the rhetoric that companies offer in their commitment to advancing uh, diversity. And you see that in sectors where there have been lots of concerns about the lack of diversity or the practices that undercut gender inequality or that frankly are blatantly gender discriminatory. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. We're here having this conversation, right? I mean, I think this was a conversation that wasn't happening even two or three years ago. And, you know, thanks to podcasts like, like yours, like this is in the news, you know, for patent folks every day. Like I, I feel like, you know, I open law 360 or Bloomberg or something. There's, and there's always a mention to considerations of, you know, racial diversity, gender diversity. I think it's been great. We've brought attention to this issue. Like, I mean, that's, you can't solve the problem until you identify the problem. And, you know, that we've so clearly identified the problem, that that's a huge step. And so hopefully we'll keep taking those steps. And I like pushing against the idea that this is just lag time. And that, well, you know, there's a kind of self-correction narrative that, well, in enough time and with, you know, a new generation of lawyers, this will change. And that's just not true. <laughs> it's yeah. not true that there is an air and inevitability yeah. to an equality, you know, to quality momentum. It doesn't work that way, it seems, because of something that you've mentioned earlier. You know, you look at these upper echelons of appellate practice and it's there are, you know, there are the kind of usual suspects who you would identify with a, a different generation of top litigators. That that's not all of them. You know, there is a new those elite litigators are, as we talked about, a new boys club. They are not the hangers on from, you know, practices that span 50 years necessarily. And I think that the data in your paper shows that, right? You have a 10-year span where the numbers aren't really changing. In the government, it seems that there's some progress, but in private practice, uh, there's been none in in a decade. And even I think at at least at the Supreme Court, numbers seem to be going backwards a little bit. Um, So it gets to your point that just add women and stir isn't isn't good enough. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the arc of history is not inevitably leading to like greater equity, right? Unless we intervene to like change where the arc is going, it's going to keep arcing in the same direction, so to speak. And that, that direction, you know, largely excludes um, women and excludes people of color. And it's good to inter- hopefully intervene and, and change that at least a little bit. 
Well, and Paul, also, there are a lot of men that, and I live in the Bay Area where I think a lot of white men think that they're enlightened. So it kind of stops them from really taking some of the information because they think like, oh, no, I'm not that guy. But then I hear things like, you know, I realize that, you know, playing golf and cycling are really popular things to do with clients. And I'm thinking, well, the female in-house counsel I know might not necessarily be cycling with you or playing, you know, a round of golf on a Saturday. So then you basically decided that you're not focusing on business development with female in-house counsel, things like that. I find that it's hard because if you're not, you, you understand that there's a problem, but then you're doing things or the way you behave is perpetuating it because you feel like you're enlightened, but you're actually not, which is extremely frustrating to me because you kind of want to take the guy and shake him a little bit and kind of say like, you're not getting it. Or I see that I'm not considered an equal, but then people are like, but I'm mentoring this more junior female associate or a more, you know, mid-level female associate so they think that they're like this woke, enlightened person, but then they don't look at me as an equal. I don't know if, the, you know, what you, what your response is to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really interesting, maybe it gets to a little bit of what I was after with the kind of lean in comment that some of the, these interpersonal dynamics we take so for granted. They're imprinted on us that we should have certain expectations of what kinds of questions we can be asked and what kinds of conversation we should make. And I find the implicit bias material in this way really interesting. When you read about the experiences of women of color uh, in the legal profession and the amount of mentorship they're asked to give but don't receive, the amount of service work they're asked to do that, you know, then what we've said earlier, the inclusion tax, all these things add up. And it's pernicious for the reason that you just said, April, is because it's at one point, it's hard to put your finger on that those types of interactions that perpetuate that status. And then we there's an arsenal of retorts or responses when you suggest that that could be at work. I mean, when you when you say to a colleague, no, I'm not going to take notes at this meeting because I have to take notes at every other meeting. And why am I always the person that's asked? Oh, well, I'm yeah. And then there's, you know, so there, that's a, that I will give an example as well from legal academia. We, we had a, what we call a faculty day where we do strategic planning and we were in breakout rooms and I started to, this was a, a several years ago. I started to, to count the, and, and make note every time I was in a breakout room, who was asked to be the recorder, to take the notes and report back as if it was some great honor to get to take the notes and report back. Inevitably, 95% of the time, it was a junior woman. And, uh, and it didn't matter, you know. And so, and then, I, you know, I, I talked about it with a friend. I said, you know, every time this happened, let's, let's call it out. And we started to do it. And the range of responses we, we received were just, shock and oh what I that's not what I meant and well you did it last time and I'm rambling a bit and apologies but it's to your point that some of it's subtle and then when you when you highlight it there are a lot lots of naturalized responses that minimize or uh, dismiss what you're seeing. There was actually an article, I think in the last year that someone did an analysis at the Supreme Court of how often the male justices interrupted the female justices, or I, I think how how much just the female justice versus males were interrupted. I forget the precise details. Um, but that made the rounds, and it was the same thing. You saw some people just say it's a different style, right? Like it's it just has to do with the style of the justices and how they talk. I think there was you can never tell. The justices don't really talk about it. But I think after that came out, uh, at least out of the arguments I heard, I actually, it, it felt like calling attention to it made people pay attention to it more. And I actually felt like I heard and saw less of that in some of the arguments immediately preceding it. Uh, admittedly, I've not gone through transcripts and, and tested that. Um, but it was just something I noticed when listening where I, 
I heard less of it. So at the same time, even though there are minimizing reactions, I think there's still power in calling attention to it because the next time someone assigns that, even if they got called out last time and they didn't like it and they got defensive, they're going to think about that the next time they go through it because they don't want to get called out again, even if they don't think it's wrong. That's a great thing. And I I think it's too, it's important. I think one thing that makes the Supreme Court example that you mentioned very salient is it's extremely objective. Maybe you have the defensive reaction, but to the extent you be like, look, here are the numbers. They're objective that these things are happening. It's maybe you're still defensive about it, but like you kind of got to say like, okay, I guess it's true. And, you know, hopefully, you know, with our, though we've kind of focused on a narrow slice of litigation being, you know, federal circuit patent appeals, I think one of the benefits of it is like, it's very concrete. The, you know, the numbers are what they are. And so you you may think you're a great mentor, you may think you're doing all these things informally, but we can show you through these objective metrics that there is still a disparity going on here. And so think, you know, maybe that's one, uh, you know, in praise of maybe uh, Kate going back, go go back to the transcripts and see how they've done um, this, pack, this past term. And if, if they've done better, I mean, that's maybe a, an argument for these sorts of very sort of quantitative analyses. So you bring up a great point about measure measurement yeah. and objective because and, and this is true of the law teaching the number of processes that just ex- exist informally that those to me are the gateway <laughs> for so who are we going to invite to speak oh i don't know who did we invite last year oh what do you think what do you think when you don't have a process when you can't explain to someone well how did we get to this decision why did we pick this person? Why did we choose to spend money in that way? That's where I think a lot, and law firms are a lot like law schools in that regard. Well, why do we do it that way? Well, we've just done it that way, you know. And so I think that there is something about both identifying these gaps, but then identifying where you don't have process, you're relying on people's conversation and formal relationships. And those are the places in which, lo and behold, you know, we, well, we we wanted to invite speakers who were diverse, but we just, you know, none of them were available. Well, there was no speaker available yeah. <laughs> in the country. Yeah. And so I was on our law school's committee this year for appointing new faculty. And obviously, you know, in, in, in hiring diversity, racial, uh, gender, all, all sorts of educational background, all this diversity is, you know, we're very concerned about. And one of our initiatives that I think ended up being very successful in resulting in an extremely diverse new class of professors that we're bringing on is we just kept records, right? We kept records of everybody we, we did preliminary interviews with, right? What, what was the, you know, what was their race? What was their gender? Where did they go to school? Any, anything else that we might be concerned about? And I think just having, you know, that Excel spreadsheet, the, the 30 or 40 candidates that we talked to being able to just step back and be like, okay, who are we going to bring to the next step as compared to like who we talked to at the previous step? Like our decision-making was so much better informed simply because we had made a record of what we had done. And I think, you know, the payout, we got an incredibly, you know, go to Temple's Law Twitter feed to see all the amazing um, (laughs) new faculty that we've hired uh, this year, but um, they're incredibly impressive. And I think they, uh, they look exactly like we want um, our faculty to look. And a big part of it was just like, we weren't only conscious of diversity considerations, we kept tabs on what we were doing in a very objective way. And I think that's key. And I think, you know, hopefully our, our project is a one part of that. Yeah. And it, it becomes about sort of being accountable for things uh, in, in a sense. You call out BLM, Me Too, and things like that, where it's kind of shining some light on some of these issues. And, you know, maybe we can have a little bit of hopefulness and positivity in terms of like wrapping this up is kind of where do we go from here? We're having these great conversations and we see things that are moving forward, but where do we go from here? No, I mean, I think that I do think there's momentum. And I think that part of it is what we were talking about, you know, in the organization by organization approach of having process keeping track, having these conversations. But I I guess I'd also make a plug that part of what Me Too and Black Lives Matter, they're calling for fundamental transformation 
of the way in which we have taken responsibility for past of racial injustice and sexism, but they're also calling for reimagining of what is our collective responsibility for the future. And part of that has to be governments that can subsidize childcare meaningfully, that provide people the basic resources they need so that there aren't these profound income gaps that now characterize and have characterized our country. They're calling for a transformation of how we think about our workplaces, the state, and our roles in them. And that's a pretty tall agenda, <laughs> but I'm an optimist. And I think that we, you know, those should be our shared priorities. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it is daunting. We're learning, right? We're at the very beginning of achieving those goals that Rachel mentioned. It's a, it's a painful process, right? There's a lot of people who want to get in the way of There's a lot of people who benefit from the system we have and the system that we capture in our studies. So it's not going to be easy. And, you know, having this conversation is a really important first step. Some of the small thing, you know, small steps that, we met, that we've mentioned today and that we mentioned in the paper, you know, they're goals that are definitely worth pursuing. But without the sort of more fundamental changes and the more fundamental reckoning that Rachel mentioned and that Black Lives Matter is calling for, the Me Too movement has highlighted, there's only so much change that's going to happen. It's daunting to be sure, but I think there's a good reason to put your head down and keep working towards it because otherwise we'll be back here in 10 years and the number of the percentage of oral arguments delivered by females will be like 13%. Well, and the, and the thing is, it's also people need to recognize that diversity is good for business. I mean, it truly is. And I was talking to someone and I, I said, diversity is who we are. You know, I live in the Bay Area where and in California where we're going to pretty soon be a majority minority state. Right. And the Bay Area is very diverse. So if people think about it that way, I hope that they can realize it's not just something that's right, but it's who we are. And it actually is going to help companies to be better in terms of you're not just looking straight at the mirror. You have the mirror from all different sides and different perspectives that help you just to do a better job for your company and then for the country as a whole. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we we, were we started talking about sort of motivations for this project. One, one of my sort of personal motivations or interest in this field is you know, I teach intellectual property classes. I teach patent law classes. And there's a lot of women in those classes. I, I was lucky enough to actually give a presentation about this very topic up at Hofstra Law School a couple of weeks ago. And it was like an advanced intellectual property seminar, right? So these are students who are like really committed to studying IP law. It was like 12 women and three men. And so like what's happening, right? That I, I encounter in my day-to-day -day of teaching these like incredibly bright, enthusiastic women who, who are interested in this field why are they not showing up at the highest levels? I want to change that. And hopefully our paper at least helps a little bit. Kate, any last questions or thoughts? No, I. this has been really enlightening. And as a math and science person, I, I like that the focus on, on just writing it down, the focus on just tracking the data, just the fact that being aware helps the problem. I think to scientists, that must sound like a duh, but for the rest of the world, it, it might be novel, right? Because it's just they've never done it. And momentum means you just keep going in the same direction until something pushes you off track. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, just, you know, sort of more generally, my approach as a scholar is it never hurts to like, just find out the data, right? Start counting things. So you always find interesting things The I mean, I have to say, coming to this project, the data we found about the PTO and the gender gender equality among the lawyers represent that. That I did. I expected to find the inequality generally. I did not expect to find that, and it just jumped off the page once we started counting. Um, and that was fascinating, right? So I think I think that's kind of a lesson you can apply across the board of like even if you have this intuition, try to quantify it and dig. You know, you'll be you might be surprised about what you find, even if it might confirm your intuition in some ways, but it might surprise you in other ways. And so there's a real value in creating this sort of knowledge. Well, and I think that the work that you have done and podcasts like this and other things the Federal Circuit Bar Association is doing, et cetera, hopefully can continue to shine the light on these issues and will continue to do the work. Uh, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate having the two of you on here and the work that you've done It's and continue to do. It's really remarkable and 
thank you so much for your time and being part of this project. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been really great. Thank you for joining us today. Please subscribe to Sidebars on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, or your preferred podcasting platform. And don't forget to rate or leave a review. If you enjoyed Sidebars, we invite you to check out Kilpatrick Townsend's Medicine and Molecules blog at kilpatricktownsend.com to read, watch, and listen to other related insight on patent law. We'll also put that information in our show notes. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and are not necessarily those of Kilpatrick Townsend. Mm-hmm.